Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. We're the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Rick Hess. Rick is a resident scholar and director of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he works on K-12 and higher education issues. He is the author of Education Week's popular blog, Rick Hess Straight Up, is a regular contributor to Forbes and The Hill, and serves as the executive editor of Education Next. For our spring 2020 issue, Rick wrote a thought-provoking essay for us titled The Next Conservative Education Agenda. In his piece, Rick argues that, quote, conservatives are uniquely positioned to do more than just subsidize the status quo and to instead provide new opportunities and bust the self-serving trusts that have come to dominate the education landscape. Focusing on policy specifics, Rick lays out a bold vision for a new education agenda that can improve the lives of students, families, and communities while also garnering political support. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. So we want to spend most of the time on the podcast today talking about policy specifics. We'll touch on early childhood education, K-12, higher ed. But we just have a basic question first off. Why do conservatives need a new education agenda? What's wrong with what they've been doing so far? Because our old one isn't persuading anybody, isn't convincing people that we're actually walking the walk when we talk about equal opportunity and giving everybody a fair chance of success. And because you can basically reduce our current education agenda down to we're for school choice in K-12 and free speech in higher ed. And these are both good things to be for, but they don't address a lot of the kitchen table issues that families are wrestling with when it comes to education. At the same time, you sort of note at the beginning of the piece that that's a curious mistake for conservatives to be making because conservatism, it would seem, should be winning the education argument. There's, there's a lot about conservatism that makes it far more amenable to a strong education policy than, say, the left. Why is that? What is it about conservatism that agrees with education? When it comes to education, the left is in a position to spend a lot of money. They're very comfortable spending money, and that's an advantage. But if you think about the things education is grounded in, it's grounded in notions of self-discipline, community, economic opportunity. These are the watchwords of conservatism as we have known it. These are things that figure prominently in Tocqueville and Madison and Kirk and Hayek. The fact that conservatives have often looked like they were fumbling for something to say on schooling other than, you know, unions are bad and school choice is good is remarkable given how central the role of education really is to two centuries of conservative thought. As you say, that the Democrats have continued to move left, including on education policy. Seemingly, that would open up a space for conservatives to appeal to moderate Americans or right-leaning Americans on education. But you also say just in general, and you've, you've already touched on this, that conservatism is, quote, remarkably hospitable to conservatism. Why is that in general? I mean, you talked about things like community, but there's another great quote from your piece. You say, quote, Education must be first and foremost about the kind of people we want to be, end quote. Elaborate a little bit on that for us. Sure. You know, when you think about the thing that drew me to education 30 years ago as a high school teacher is there's lots of worthy work for people to do. But one of the fascinating things about education, especially among public policy domains, 
education is not just about how we meet current needs. It's not just about how do we distribute or allocate goods. It's really about how do we raise our children? What do we teach them to value? What do we teach them to cherish? What kinds of communities do we raise them in? And if you think about so many of the hot button conversations in education, how we should approach school discipline, not just the right, the vast majority of centrists and even center left adults strongly agree that we need to make sure we have responsible, effective discipline in schools. This push against discipline that you see on the contemporary extreme left is way out of touch with most people. Most Americans want to make sure that kids appreciate the good things about American history, the heroes of American history, as part of a larger narrative, as part of a challenge to how we think about it. That kind of comfort with what is good and true about America is anathema in the academy. It's anathema with progressives, but it's second nature on much of the conventional intellectual right. So the fact that these are things that, you know, Bill Bennett used to talk about ad nauseum 25 years ago, somehow we got out of the habit. I have some theories, but whatever they, whether they're true or not, we got out of the habit of talking about these things and simply talking about the things that we actually and truly value would seem the easiest step in the world. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how we might approach persuading people to let us make that case, to hand us the reins, as it were. So you start your essay with early childhood education, and it's an issue that's come up a lot, certainly in the Democratic primary, but not just on the progressive left. You note in the piece that two-thirds of American adults favor increasing federal funding for pre-K programs. And yet for a lot of conservatives, this sounds like a disaster in the making. Federally run pre-K infant care programs doesn't sound like sort of the conservative vision of small government. So how can conservatives make a move on this issue, address people's voters' needs and wants, but still remain committed to conservative principles? Sure. And I think one of the key things for listeners to keep in mind is that we have made the mistake at times of talking about education in instrumental terms, in policy terms. And what happens is when we do that, we forget that so much of education needs to be anchored in the family, in personal responsibility, in partnerships between parents and educators. As soon as we start just making it about policy and spending levels, it's easy to forget what this stuff needs to be tethered to, and we wind up in these who can outbid who debates, which inevitably drift leftward. If we remember that this is actually about solving real problems for real families, when we are not all sheltered at home in the midst of a pandemic, one of the realities of the American economy is that you have lots of single parents who have to work, and you have lots of two-parent households where both parents have to work or choose to work. And that's a reality. And for some of us, in the coastal intellectual caste, having two parents work may be more of a choice. But for lots of families across this land, both parents work because that's what it takes to kind of have a decent roof over your head and afford two cars and feed the kids and take a vacation once a year. So conservatives of all people ought to be able to appreciate that this is exactly what we talk about by way of personal responsibility, of two-parent families, of single parents taking responsibility for themselves and their children. And 
if those parents are struggling to figure out how the heck do I get my kids coverage they need when we don't have the dense family networks we once had, when we don't have community relationships that make it easy to lay off three and four-year-olds on aunts or grandparents or cousins, that's a real practical problem that faces lots of people who are working hard and playing by the rules. And conservatives should be enthusiastic about helping these families solve these challenges in responsible ways. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be for new federal programs. It doesn't mean, certainly, that we should be for what Mayor de Blasio has done in New York City, is tacking a new grade onto the front end of a massive New York City education bureaucracy. It does mean, I think, that we ought to be imaginative and proactive about how do we figure out how to help give families choices of responsible early child care settings? How do we encourage a range of provision from nonprofits, from for-profits, frequently hosted conveniently by the places where these adults work in ways that are consistent with letting these folks work hard and play by the rules? So what I try to sketch here is a different way of thinking about how do you go about that. Yeah, Rick, it's a really interesting idea. I think you mentioned specifically the Fisher tax credit, which was in, I think, believe the 2017 tax cut bill. I think that was for more for paid family leave, but you said it could also be maybe retooled early childhood. Talk a little bit about that. And, and has there been any results from that so far? Sure. So, so what, well, basically what I suggest is, look, one of the big problems with proposals for New York City-style child care or people who are talking about just new federal programmatic funding is most early childhood education Basically, what the proponents really want to do is tack more grades in front of kindergarten. Now, nobody wants to put four-year-olds, four-year-olds on the school bus. So what that actually means is parents have to figure out how to get their four-year-old to the campus where their four-year-olds are in institutional settings that are designed primarily with a focus to educating seven and 17-year-olds. And then they've got to go pick these kids up. Now, this is not necessarily at all convenient to their place of work. It means that we're talking about early childhood education, which runs something like school hours, so generally in kind of a 8.30 to 2.30 window. A third of working class Americans don't actually work a traditional work day. If you're working swing shift at Walmart or you're delivering, you know, you're working in an Amazon queue, you know, what you need is somebody reliable to watch your kid, especially if you're a single parent, potentially 4 p.m. to midnight. And in fact, the last thing you're going to be able to do, even if you get your kid to a traditional early childhood situated at a school site and your kid is sick or your kid is an issue, is you can't trust them with your four or five. You've got to go over, pick them. So what, what we want to think about is how do you get more employers to offer early child care at the place of work? This could be a single large employer. It could be a collaborative, a co-op of a bunch of employers in a certain setting. They can contract with a provider. They could, might contract with the school district, but they might contract with a nonprofit or a for-profit. Ideally, you want to run these things at hours that make sense for the employees in that environment. And by the way, this works extraordinarily well in early childhood because whereas when we get to, say, K to 12, we worry a lot about the instructional year. There's scope and sequence, and teachers have to cover content and order. A lot of the most effective early childhood models, say Montessori, are very much plug and play. Kids show up, there's dozens or 100 plus activities in a classic Montessori model, 
kids choose which one they do. They're coloring or painting or doing them. And if the kids aren't there the next day, it doesn't create any linear problems in terms of learning. Now, what the Fisher credit, just as an example does, is it is a way of thinking about how do we encourage and reward companies which want to step up and provide early childhood in the same way they have traditionally provided, say, healthcare. In fact, whereas a lot of reform has focused on trying to get companies out of healthcare because there's concerns about linking your coverage to your place of work, those concerns don't apply when it comes to early childhood because we actually really want kids to be at a place that's very convenient right. to their parents when they're at this age. So the Fisher credit is, is, is an example, but certainly really meant more is illustrative of the way states or federal policymakers might go about this than necessarily the particular solution. I guess we'll turn our attention to sort of the second chunk of, of the policy agenda, the possible <laughs> policy agenda, which is primary and secondary education, huge part of America's education establishment. And a lot of attention in the last few years has been devoted to dissatisfaction on the part of teachers and increasingly in, in the public at compensation for teachers. Why has this become such a problem in, in just the last few years? And how can conservative policymakers speak to that crisis? Great question. And look, this actually is one of the places where conservatives have a huge advantage. Early childhood, the left is caught up with all of its cozy ties with the funders and the early childhood community, and God forbid they ruffle any feathers. Conservatives don't have to worry about that stuff. K-12, same thing. If you're a democratic policymaker, you've got to do this stuff in a way that's not going to unduly alienate the AFT and the NEA. Conservatives got a lot more leeway. Look, the reality is, is teachers have a, have a real gripe, but so do taxpayers. If you go back over, say, the last 25 years, back to the mid-90s, you wouldn't know it from a bunch of the public debate, but per pupil after inflation, school spending is up substantially. Even through the Great Recession and everything else, per pupil after inflation, school spending is up ballpark 30% or more across the nation. But real teacher pay after inflation is flat or down in most states. So part of what's happened is you've seen the accrual of teacher frustration over time. They spent a lot of the Bush and Obama years on the defensive against some truly problematic evaluation schemes, which stuff where we were going to use complex econometric analyses of reading and math scores to grade whether or not teachers taught science effectively. I mean, stuff that if they brought it into AEI, I would kick and scream to Robert Doerr's office. So oh, of course. I <laughs> what teachers were saying. But, you know, once, once that started to recede and once No Child Left Behind got pushed out of the picture by Every Student Succeeds Act, teachers were able to start both gaining some political momentum and refocus on pay. And it, like I said, they've got a point. The problem is where the teachers don't do themselves any favors is there's three and a half million teachers in America. 80% of school budgeting of the $700 billion a year we spend on K-12 80% of it already goes to salaries and benefits. 55, 60% of it goes to teacher salaries and benefits, to rest as administrators and staff. Why is it that real per-pupil spending has gone up and teacher pay hasn't? It's because those dollars have basically gone into two things. One is pensions and health care for education staff, and two is to hire lots of more bodies, particularly more bodies in administrative and support ranks. 
if we had simply kept spending on healthcare and pensions constant and maintained the staff ratios, teachers would today earn about 25 to 30% more than they actually do. Hmm. Now, nationally, average teacher pay is about $59,000 a year per teacher. That's according to the National Education Association. 25, 30% more than that, average teacher pay would be over north of $70,000. This would actually not be problematic pay. In fact, it's pretty easy to argue, as our colleague Andrew Biggs has, is that lots of teachers today, honestly, it's hard to believe it, but they're overpaid. These are teachers who have a lot of seniority, who don't necessarily do a lot to make a difference in kids' lives. The teachers who are massively underpaid tend to be teachers in the first 10 or 15 years of their working career because teachers are paid by seniority, and especially teachers who are making a big difference in their schools for their kids and communities. One problem is if you simply try to do what some of the Democratic field talked about over the last 12 months, is just put more money into teacher compensation, it turns out that you could spend $50, $60 billion a year and not really move the needle much on any individual teacher's compensation, especially after you take the bite out for pension and healthcare. What's the way around this? Well, in healthcare, for instance, it turns out there's about the same number of total professionals doing work in American medicine as in education, about 8 million by the time you add in everybody who does stuff from physicians to EMTs to RNs to the rest. Average pay, according to the Census Bureau for professionals in medicine, is about 55,000 a year, but average pay for physicians is north of 200,000. Only about 10% of the medical field is physicians, and they're paid very differently from people who have community college degrees or from folks who are working side by side with them but don't have the same training. The intuition for education is we have a model which makes it extraordinarily hard to pay good teacher difference makers in anything like we would like them to. So what you start to do, what you want to see is particularly governors do, is go into the state compensation schedules and into local job descriptions and start to reimagine these in ways that creates opportunity for teachers to take on new roles, take on new responsibilities, and be paid profoundly more than they are today. What are some of the obstacles to making that happen? Or maybe put it another way, we're sort of working chronologically, where were all of these jobs suddenly coming from? Like all of these administrators, where, where was the demand for that? So, and this is actually not a new phenomenon. It's a half-century-old phenomenon. If you go back, for instance, to 50 years, back to 1970, we had about 27 students per teacher in 1970. Today, we have 14 students per teacher across the nation. Now, you don't see 14 kids in a classroom. That's not student-teacher ratio. That's how we get. One of the things we've done is we've reduced the amount of contact time teachers have with kids. We've dramatically increased the number of staff working, say, with special ed kids. We've profoundly, monstrously increased the number of folks who are called things like instructional coaches or support staff. Where's the demand for it? You know, where's the demand for new jobs in any bureaucracy? I think some degree of it is when you go into, when you go into a bureaucratic budget request, it's always easy to ask for new positions. There's always somebody at an organization or an ed school who's come up with some trendy new title for something you need to staff, area superintendents. So let's create a new layer of management and they need their staff. Also, obviously, unions are always interested in adding membership. So unions have historically, one of the dirty secrets is they have generally supported efforts to reduce class size and add bodies without telling their members that this is coming at the price 
of teacher compensation. Just for instance, if we had kept the same teacher staffing levels as we have in 1970 relative to kids, average teacher pay today would be north of $120,000 a year. So we have made a very, we've made a very real choice, deliberate or not, for quantity over, you know, professional compensation. Another thing you talk about in your piece is teacher licensing. And I think you've got a piece here that says that it costs about $25,000 and requires 1,500 hours of training for the average teacher. And that's more hours than a typical teacher works each in a year. And is that one thing that state and federal lawmakers can look at to try to start to address this problem? Yeah, you know, and, and especially for listeners who, you know, are sometimes used to maybe conversations around health care or other kinds of regulation, it's important to understand how much of this is actually at the state level. Um, 90% of, of K-12 spending is state and local in the United States. So a huge amount of, so teacher certification, for instance, is very much a state activity. A governor who understood the problems, the problem of runaway licensure, could say, look, for instance, in Missouri, they have something on the order of 800 distinct teacher licenses. What happens is when you go through a teacher training preparation, like I did three decades ago, you have to pay money to the college, either as an undergrad or for a graduate degree in teacher license. In teacher license. You take courses. You also do student teaching, a practicum, and then you do another 1,200 hours typically in the spring on top of 300 hours in the fall. You are observed some number of times. There's some write-ups. There's very sparse evidence for actually doing any quality control. There's a lot of reason to be skeptical about what we're actually insisting upon in terms of teacher mastery through this process. We're licensing somewhere on the order of 300,000 teachers a year through about 1,400 programs. So quality control is something of a bear regardless. You know, and then what we're doing is we're pushing these people out. And one way to think about this is, look, I'm not against training. But I'm not sure, A, that mandatory training is fulfilling its purpose. B, I'm not sure it's doing a very good job of weeding anybody out. And C, there is another model. For instance, in a field where you think that a lot of the value that somebody brings is interpersonal, is their ability to listen, to mentor, to coach, to connect with kids, these are things that's incredibly hard to teach. What we can teach is how to teach elementary reading instruction. We can teach folks how to build scope and sequence. But when you listen to the education community, this is not how they defend teacher certification. They usually defend it in terms of we need people who are empathetic, thoughtful, reflective, respectful. Well, there's models of this. This is how journalism works. Business management is all about soft skills. And if you look, say, at J schools or, or, or business programs, lots of people pursue MBAs or journalism degrees even though no employers require them. They give you a leg up in landing the job, but if a, an employer wants to hire an aspiring manager who doesn't have an MBA, they have that right. And in fact, what you might do is because you haven't paid a lot of money and sat out of the workforce two years on the front end to get an MBA, it makes it a lot more practical for employers to start somebody at a more reasonable salary and then provide them a training and coaching and mentoring along the way. Right. So one thing we might want to do is think differently about folks get hired into junior teaching jobs. Again, think what we just talked about. Pay senior veteran teachers much more. Pay these junior teachers much less, but don't make them have to sit out of the workforce for a year. Let them get mentoring and coaching as part of what they're getting for working at a reduced rate in more of an apprenticeship model and let them grow into the role in that way. Now, this would require 
governors to direct their state education agencies to revisit licensure barriers. It would require districts to rewrite their hiring playbooks and to rethink job descriptions. It would generally require revisiting collective bargaining agreements, which would put districts in a hammerlock around compensation. There's also a chicken and egg dimension here that we're only training people for the produce 300,000 widgets a year to drop them into one to 3.5 million jobs. So what we also need is a governor with some cojones and a state higher education system that can look around the corner to ask, how do we sit down with some school districts and start to think about who plays chicken and who plays egg in terms of imagining a new model? One of the things that was really striking in the piece, and then there were several examples of this, were, were these sort of charters or private schools that, that are really radically changing the way that things are done. They're coming up with new models. They can cut administration and wind up paying starting teachers, you know, $125,000 a year, whatever it is. And, and we see that at basically every level. And I'm, I'm sort of just, I guess what I come back to is it seems to me like one of the biggest problems in education is sort of your typical state bureaucratic problem. We have these entrenched interests. We have politicians catering to public unions. We have people, insiders that are catering to themselves and their own pensions and not looking out for parents and students. And so I guess what I'm sort of wondering is how much of this really could be boiled down to the old conservative agenda, which is to say, like, we really just need to, like, take down this bureaucracy in a sense and, and let families and communities figure this out, because a lot of the innovation that we we've already seen, at least even in the last few years, has come from the private sector. Yeah, so, so I, think, I think there's a lot of that. I think one way to think about a label that conservatives will be familiar with, that you can put around a lot of ideas, is look, trust busting and deregulation. A lot of what we have built up in the K-12 space, in the higher ed space, in the early childhood space, involves enormous dollars being channeled through familiar institutions that the left has grown comfortable with. And when they can't figure out how to do the things that students and families need, they say, well, we need more resources to make it happen. What we don't appreciate is the degree to which the current influx of resources, 700 billion in K-12, 400 billion in higher ed, aren't getting the job done because so much of them are caught up in underfunded pensions and providing health care and bloated staffing. The trick is, you know, one of the reasons that charter, charter schooling, for instance, is so exciting in K-12 is it can create visions of the possible. But the, the, the frustrating reality is that there's 7,000 charter schools in the United States today. You would have a hard time convincing me that 300 of them are actually busy reimagining the way you go about doing this work. You know, something on the order of 5% probably. And part of this is that it's not just the trusts and the oligopolies. It's also ingrained habits of mind. It's also risk aversion. It's also that you lack an ecosystem of actors who can help you figure it out and do it with you. To do teacher pay really differently, it means we need to figure out what do we do with existing pension commitments in a way that's responsible and respectful to commitments we've made. It means we need to think about how we train teachers differently, how to HR work differently. And so the problem is, is that if you simply give families, say, the choice of charter schooling, you will see some terrific schools emerge. But in places like New Orleans or Washington, D.C. or New York City, where you've seen hotbeds of charter schooling, I would argue that most aren't actually engaging in what we're talking about. 
And that's partly because there's a systemic dimension. And that's where, again, political leadership, civic leadership is so crucial. And where I think, again, those of us who don't have to do much every day except read books and stare at our word processors <laughs> have, done, have done a poor job of equipping civic and political leaders to lead the kind of charge that we need. All right, so Rick, we'll, we'll go to the last part of your piece now and the last kind of part of the agenda, higher education, of course. Obviously, I feel like higher ed has become kind of been under fire a lot in the, in the public. Um, there was obviously the, the big admission scandal last year that came to light. Obviously, student debt continues to, to pile up. People are wondering whether degrees are worth it. You also write in your piece that higher education can still, quote, do much to promote economic opportunity and social mobility. So it's still got these important functions. If you're a conservative education policymaker, how do you preserve those functions from the bad reputation that higher ed is starting to have now? Sure. Grant Addison and I wrote a piece last year for you guys called sure. Busting the College Industrial Complex, which is how I tend to think about this. Look, higher ed has a valuable role to play. Some people really just love education. And if you're going to work at a think tank or if you're going to work in a creative or intellectual field, a 12th grade education is probably not going to get it done. And there's a huge just consumption joy of being in a university environment. There's also lots of jobs where you need training beyond 12th grade if you're going to be a program. The trick is, the mistake that we've made is colleges grew up as ways in which in, in old Bologna and Paris over five centuries ago, is ways for groups of craftsmen and artists and intellectuals to share their insight and skills with groups of students. You had to get groups of students together to make this economically viable. There's a collective action problem. If you're a sculptor, you can't really make a living teaching a student. So all you can do is take an apprentice. So the idea of university was you create this collection of folks who are going to learn together. That is less and less true in 21st century America. If any of us wants to learn something, turns out it's very easy to tap expertise. It's very easy to find reams of books on. This is no longer the challenge. The challenge is how do you make this learning coherent and cohesive, and how do you actually verify that somebody has learned it? These are the things that higher ed can do. Those things are important for some kinds of work. If I am going to have you as emergency medical tech, when my child is coming into, the, into urgent care, I really want somebody to have made sure your training was coherent and sufficient and verified that you've actually learned it. On the other hand, if you're hiring somebody to come in and work as a research assistant at AEI, like I've done, I don't know, dozens of times the last 15 years, I got to tell you. The fact that you paid a college or the taxpayers paid a college 100000 bucks, and you sat around in dorms and planned you know, fraternity parties and went to football <laughs> games doesn't give me any verification that you actually have the skills I need. And yet, when you go to websites, they will ask, do you have a BA? Right. It is a non-negotiable job requirement. We have turned this piece of paper into something that holds your ambitions hostage. You're not allowed to pursue work until you go ahead and find one of these places, half of which will admit everybody anyway. You've got to find one of these places, give them your money, and sit around until they give you a piece of paper that says you sat around long enough. <laughs> and then you're allowed to pursue work. That is when higher ed has turned from an engine of opportunity into an engine of oppression. 
So the problem is not with higher ed per se. The problem is with this unholy nexus in which what started out as craftsmen and intellectuals sharing their expertise with students who wanted to learn from them, somehow that turning into a credentialing engine that keeps millions of people from being allowed to pursue remunerative employment until they've paid the bribe. And that's what we need to tackle. And I think if we can sever that relationship between getting a credential and being allowed to apply for jobs to which that credential shows no obvious, meaningful <laughs> qualification, then we can get higher ed back to doing what it's supposed to do, which is convincing students that it's going to give them skills or learning or an experience which is valuable and that it is not because they have to pay it in order to be allowed to seek work. So how do we get there? Which is to say, like, it seems like a big part of that is like a cultural transformation. Like people need to stop thinking about colleges and, and college degrees in a certain kind of way because they just aren't credentialing people in the way that we would want or expect them to. But the government seems like limited in its capacity to deal with that. So what are some of the tools that government does have to help? So actually, so this is an interesting one. Actually, it turns out the government, actually, federal government had a lot of tools in this one, which is interesting. You want to think it. So one part of this is when people hear me say this, they go, well, Rick, look, employers are self-interested. If they didn't think degrees were useful, they wouldn't ask for degrees. And I'm like, oh, actually, they don't think degrees are useful. Joe Fuller up at Harvard Business School has got the best data, but Burning Glass has got great data on this. Huge numbers of employers will tell you they don't have any faith in the college degree, that they think people with more credentialing, and in fact, the evidence is just people with higher credentials who are in jobs that don't really need those credentials are more likely to turn over or more expensive or less satisfied with their work. So what's happening? Well, basically, it's actually a problem that the federal government has created. Back as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1965, the government was trying <laughs> quite appropriately to put an end to race-based discrimination in employment and hiring. When the Supreme Court interpreted the CRA as it applies to hiring back in Griggs versus Duke Power like 50 years ago, what they said was, you have to show that any hiring test is directly related to what the people do if it has a disparate impact by race. What happened was over the ensuing decade or two, employers got very nervous about using any kind of hiring test because if it had any disparate impact, you would get dragged into court, there'd be class action. Even if you won, it would be a lot of money and bad publicity. So even right. though Chief Justice Rehnquist and Griggs versus Duke Power said, this applies to higher ed credentials, just like every other, it's never been treated that way. The EEOC has given, hiring, has given college degrees a free ride. Nobody has ever sued over higher ed credentials, even though we know they are massively disparate in terms of who gets them. And so what's happened is when you hang out and talk to HR directors and general counsel who weigh in on hiring at big companies, they have learned that Asking for a college degree is a simple wink, wink, nod, nod way to get our kind of people who know how to show up on time, know how to sit there and be bored without like letting on, learn how to turn <laughs> in paper when they're supposed to. And so it has become convenient and legally safe, even if indefensible screening. So what do you do? Well, the first thing that, for instance, and the Trump administration to its credit, has been looking into this pretty aggressively at the White House, at the Department of Labor, at the Department of Education. The 
federal government needs to revisit how the Department of Labor interprets guidelines regarding what is permissible hiring credentials. They need to recalibrate the standard. It needs to be easier to use other kinds of hiring tests, like an intensive two-day battery of assessments to see if you have skills and temperament to work behind the desk at Enterprise Rental Car. And it needs to be harder to justify using an initial screen based on college degrees to work behind the desk at Enterprise Rental Car. We've actually already seen companies in the gig economy starting to move this way. Starbucks, for instance, has moved away from acquiring baristas to have VAs. You've seen a number of big companies starting to tiptoe this direction. But what they really want is both the security of knowing that they're not going to be all out there exposed to lawsuits and bad publicity. They need to be given a little bit of push in the tush, knowing that it's not as safe to rely on college degrees as they have. And outfits like the National Association of Manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce need to be working in partnership with departments of labor and education to create some best practice models that are going to stand up when these guys get challenged before the EEOC or in courts, that they could say, yeah, this stuff is actually grounded in a real research, real analysis, and these hiring protocols ought to be regarded as at least as fair-minded and at least as job-relevant as getting a degree in medieval lit. Fair enough. (laughs) All right. Well, very interesting stuff, Rick. Uh, We're going to have a final question here to wrap up. This is, I'm taking a quote here from the end of your piece. You say, when the quote, education debate hinges on the question of who will funnel more dollars into subsidizing 20th century bureaucracies, conservatives are destined to lose. But however you say, if the question is who is able and willing to redesign institutions that no longer work for families, students, or taxpayers, conservatives can win that argument. They can win that debate. To kind of wrap up your argument here, how, how do they win that debate? Well, like, honestly, I mean, part of, the, part of the problem we get into bidding wars in education is no conservatives can actually try to outbid the left and still nobody believes it. So for instance, George Bush increased K-12 spending as part of No Child Left Behind more in his first four years than Bill Clinton did in all eight of his years. Nobody believed it. In 2004, Ted Kennedy, who had shaken hands with George Bush in early 2002 and celebrated all of the promised funding in No Child Left Behind, turned around and said, well, but the authorized spending levels were even higher, and Bush didn't come up to those. Congress never funds authorized levels. That was just But nobody believed George Bush. They believed Ted Kennedy. (laughs) Because when you're talking about spending on schools, it doesn't matter how much the right ponies up, people still figure that we're lying. On the other hand, when it comes to things like holding folks accountable for whether they're spending money well, for challenging the teacher unions to rethink job descriptions, for taking a hard look at licensure requirements, people kind of assume that conservatives are willing to be the SOB. They like, they get it. Like, we actually, even if we only are doing half measures, people are going to think our half measures are more serious than a progressive's full measures because they don't really believe progressives in their heart of hearts are willing to do tough stuff. Once we get into challenging high, you know, these higher ed cartels, once we get into focusing on making sure that early childhood is responsive to the needs of employers and is flexible about the needs of working people. These are things that people kind of intuit. They go, yeah, that's kind of what I think 
when a conservative is going to worry about education, this is the kind of stuff they would worry about. I get it. <laughs> and uh, so I think that, and look, and honestly, I think part of what we could do is we can then do the Pepsi challenge. We could say, look, these guys want to put $30 billion more into teacher pay. And it's going to give you teacher pay bump. If you do, you know, you do Kamala Harris's $30 billion, you do it nationally, it works out to, it takes it after pension, after healthcare, after you spread it around, you're taking median teacher pay nationally for $30 billion, maybe from like 59000 to sixty-one. We are offering you models in which the top 20% of teachers, as evaluated by parental feedback, by peer observation, by supervision, who opt into taking a promotion to year-round instructional leader can make $150,000 a year, but only if they choose to. We just say, which of these sounds to you like the kind of thing that's going to make more of a difference in your child's school and in your community? And we're not going to win that argument everywhere, and we're not going to win it in Berkeley, but we're going to win it in a hell of a lot of places. <laughs> Fair enough. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, Rick. So we always end the podcast with overrated, underrated. So this is rapid fire. You don't have to spend too long. Say whatever you want. But first one, we know everybody's been doing this a lot of days. We're, in fact, we're using Zoom to do this podcast, but Zoom teaching online learning, is that overrated or underrated? It sucks, and it's probably still overrated. <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. Trade and vocational training schools for teenagers. Overrated, underrated. The reality of what we have is mediocre, which means the promise of the idea is probably overrated, even though I'm a big fan of career technical ed. We just don't know how to do it well. Last one, uh, Rick. Student loan forgiveness. Overrated or underrated? Oh, massively overrated. I mean, you know, you borrow money, you ought to pay the damn money back. <laughs> Rick, this is a fun conversation. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to read Rick's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.